0: Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24-7, 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know, and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello everyone and welcome to podcast episode 28, where today we are going to be talking about increased intracranial pressure. So for those of you that are new, welcome. There are a bunch of other podcast episodes prior to this one that are available for your listening pleasure. And for those of you that have been in previous podcasts, welcome back for another episode. You can find all of my podcast episodes listed on my website, which is khoppypresents.com. Now I have just a few announcements here. Uh, The first one is my CCRN online program is available for sale as well as my PCCN review online program. Um, Both of those programs can be found by accessing my um, website at khoppypresents.com. And one of the things that makes both of my online programs different from others is the fact that my programs are available for lifetime access. So far after you have received your CEs or far after you have uh, completed and passed your CCRN and PCCN, you still have access to this information on a 24-7 basis. Also, both my PCCN and CCRN online uh, review programs are 30 accredited hours. So I think that's pretty helpful for those of you that are needing to get 100 continuing education hours over a three-year time span. Both of my review courses also have a um, mock exam at the end, which will help you prepare uh, and assess yourself prior to taking the actual exam. I do also have for sale as kind of a standalone product, my CCRN mock exam. So again, head on over to my website, khoppy presents where you will get all of that information, including the pre-sale pricing for the PCCN online review, which is my newest course. So without further ado, let's get into talking about increased intracranial pressure. It just makes good sense that we started out our neuro section talking about skull fractures, and then we talked about hematomas, and both of those things can result in an increased intracranial pressure. So one of the things that we always talk about, or we always learn when we're uh, discussing increased ICP is the Monroe Kelly hypothesis or the Monroe Kelly doctrine. And that just really makes a lot of sense. And that is you have contents inside of a box, right? That's what the skull is, is a closed box. Now you have three main contents inside that closed box. You have brain, you have blood, and you have CSF. Brain takes up about 80% of the volume. 10% is blood and 10% is CSF. So what exactly is the Monroe Kelly doctrine? Basically Monroe and Kelly state that anytime you have an increase in one or more of the three components inside the skull it is going to have to be met with a reduction in one or both of the others. In other words, in layman's terms, if something gets bigger, other things are going to have to move out of the way because there's only so much room inside the skull. So, if, for example, we've talked about uh, skull fractures, we talked about an epidural hematoma, and we said that's an arterial bleed. Very often it's a whap upside the head in the temporal area. You wind up with laceration of the middle meningeal artery, which then results in an epidural hematoma. Well, the volume then that is increasing inside the closed box, in other words, the skull is blood, right? We have an increase in blood due to an arterial bleed. So what we see initially is we see that CSF will shift out of the head and down around the cord, sequester around the cord to reduce some of the pressure. Now, the worst case scenario, I'm sure you will agree, is that when you have somebody, say for example, with an epidural hematoma, where we have that increasing, very rapid increasing in blood volume because of an arterial bleed, The worst case scenario is after CSF has maximally shifted out of the head, the next thing that's going to shift is the brain. And we have a special name for that, do we not? And that special name is typically supratentorial herniation. It can be infratentorial herniation. Now, again, I go into much more depth about these things in my CCRN review online program, but for our review here, the Monroe and Kelly doctrine means that any time one or more of the three elements inside the skull increases in mass or volume, it has to be met with a shift of one or more of the other elements inside the head. So let's take a look at some examples. So we might have a mass. Well, that is brain volume increasing, right? So we might have a neoplasm, an abscess. We might have brain edema, you know, in somebody that was hypoxic. So a postcode patient. We could have cerebral vascular alterations, like an issue with, mm, let's just say a head injury patient that has their head flexed that obstructs venous outflow by kind of kinking off or constricting the jugular vein. That's why it's really important when you have your neuro patient with their head of bed up, make sure that their head doesn't then just kind of drop down or droop down because that particular constriction on the jugular venous outflow from the head can result in intracranial hypertension. So anytime we have an increase in mass like neoplasm, volume like a bleed or CSF like hydrocephalus, for whatever etiology, or I should say from any etiology, we have the potential for developing intracranial hypertension. Now we do have autoregulatory mechanisms in order to maintain a continuous flow to the head, but when pressure gets too high, for example, mean arterial pressure greater than 150 or lower than 50 we lose autoregulation, In other words, the ability of cerebral, cerebral vessels to constrict or dilate in order to maintain a consistent flow to the head. And autoregulation is not something that you want to lose, right? Because it's there for a purpose. It's there to maintain flow. Now let's talk about some Causes of increased ICP related to ventilation and oxygenation issues. Well, certainly an airway obstruction can increase ICP. Hypercapnia and hypoxia are both very critical in terms of etiologic factors that can increase ICP. When our PCO2, I should say our patients, when our patients' PCO2 climbs, Cerebral vessels dilate in response to that hypercapnia causes cerebral vascular vasodilation. And when you have vasodilation of the cerebral vascular bed, well, you're going to have an increase in flow. You're going to have an increase in pressure and therefore you're going to have an increase in ICP. That's why when we look at ARDS patients, maybe you've listed, listened to my podcast on ARDS. We talked about, you know, we don't want to overinflate the lungs. So sometimes we will permit hypercapnia in many patients, but we drew a line in the sand, did we not? And we said that we would not allow patients that potentially have increases in intracranial pressure to become hypercapnic because that would make their ICP worse. Hypoxia, you're going to get the same end product uh, from that. You're going to get cerebral vascular dilation, an increase in flow, and an increase in pressure. Another thing that can cause an increase in ICP is suctioning Without hyperoxygenation, very important to hyperoxygenate prior to suctioning. And face it, suctioning just in and of itself is a noxious stimulus, which could increase ICP. Let's talk about positions that could increase ICP. Prone position can do it. Trendelenburg, well, that stands to reason, does it not? Standing somebody on their head practically with their bed, um, That definitely can cause an increase in ICP. And also, even extreme hip flexion can cause an increase in ICP as well. Causes of ICP increasing related to issues around a decrease in venous return from the head. So, think about the things that can obstruct flow from the head via the jugular veins. Well, it might be neck flexion. It could be a real tight tracheostomy uh, tie or cervical collar. It could be an increase in intrathoracic pressure, like positive pressure ventilation that we see all the time in the critical care setting, do we not? And then add some PEEP to that, and that also can decrease the amount of jugular venous outflow. And of course, it just makes sense that if you decrease the amount of jugular venous outflow, you're going to have an increase in pressure. Other things include the Valsalva maneuver, straining to have a bowel movement, vomiting, coughing, suctioning, and any kind of isometric exercise or isometric movement can decrease venous return and uh, increase ICP. We also have some metabolic causes of increased ICP, things that increase metabolic rate such as hyperthermia, seizure, holy smokes. Seizure activity can increase the metabolic rate by anywhere from 300 to 600 fold, which is an incredible increase in metabolic rate, thereby also increasing ICP. Even REM sleep can increase metabolic rate and increase ICP. Lastly, let's talk about some stress-related things that can increase ICP, which would include noise, bright lights, pain, disturbing conversation in the patient's room, and then noxious stimuli, In my classes, I always like to ask people, you know, what is the most noxious stimulus to a neuropatient? And really what it all boils down to is their nurse. I mean, think about it. We go into a room and we go in fully loaded, right? We have pockets full of things like, okay, I'm going to turn them and fluff them and puff them. I'm going to do my oral care. Oh, the IV probably needs to be restarted. And then I'm going to go ahead and do his oral care. And I'm going to do all these things. Well, you know, that increases the stress on the patient during that whole time. And that's why neuro nurses are really good at spacing out activities in such a way that there is an activity or an intervention care for example a, you know for example patient bath and then let the patient rest and then turn the patient let the patient rest so you have rest periods in between each activity and most nurses are not of the mindset to want to do it that way they never know what's coming around the pike around the corner. And so they say, you know, I'm going to go in that room and I'm going to get everything done. So I'm all caught up with this patient because you just never do know what's coming. And that is true. But during that time, it causes an increased stress on the part of a neural patient. Now let's go ahead then and take a look at signs and symptoms of increased ICP. Early on, we can see things like yawning restlessness confusion okay that's an early change in level of consciousness a uh, later diminished loc and posturing now on any exam including nclex they always ask what is the earliest sign of a neuro change or neuro deterioration and we all know that we need to answer that as an inc- change in LOC. It doesn't have to be diminished level of consciousness. It can, it just needs to be a change in the level of consciousness, right? So a person might go from fully lucid to confused, for example, motor changes. We might see contralateral paresis or plesia. That would be perhaps early progressing to posturing, which is late decerebrate posturing and decorticate posturing. Those are the two postures that we are looking at here. Decorticate posturing is where the patient flexes at the elbows and brings their arms in toward the core. They're flexing or bending at the elbows and plantar flexing their feet. That's decortication. Well, not that either one of them is good, but of the two of them, decortication is a little bit better than decerebration. Decortication just kind of tells you that your cerebral hemispheres aren't working all that great, but you still have a pretty intact brainstem. Whereas when we talk about, um, decerebrate posturing, where the patient adducts their arms, internally rotates them. So they extend Adduct and internally rotate their arms, and then plantar flex their feet or point their toes downward. Now we have brainstem involvement. It's not just limited to the cerebral cortex; the brainstem is involved as well. Patients describe headache, vomiting, seizures. Decreased or absent reflexes might be seen also. Think about the brainstem here. Think about things like cough, gag those are brainstem reflexes, right? Or corneal reflex, pupillary reflex, very important um, brainstem assessments that we need to take a look at and trend. I mean, a very uh, common thing to do is to trend the pupils in terms of size and equality and reactivity. In the later phases, we may see hyperthermia related to an increase in ICP. And a lot of times people will say, well, how do I know whether the hyperthermia is because the patient is, you know, maybe getting an infection or whatever. Well, do the acetaminophen test. In other words, does the patient's fever respond to acetaminophen? So in the face of a neurologic, uh, patient here, if the patient, patient's temperature goes up and they don't respond to acetaminophen, you have some pretty good criteria to think that it's a neurogenic fever. And if it's a neurogenic fever, you need to employ cooling measures. Okay. So ice in the uh, groin, ice packs in the groin and pit, uh, armpit areas, um, in order to bring down, um, the, the patient's temperature. Respiratory pattern changes. That's also another one is the respiration pattern changing. Now, again, patient might be tubed and on a ventilator, uh, in which case we may not see the same types of things that we would see if somebody wasn't intubated, but we sure can see a neurogenic hyperventilation. And when you have a patient tubed in on a vent and they are breathing well over the, the vent and their respiratory rate is up, think about the fact that their ICP must be up as well, because that's a compensatory response. When you, uh, hyperventilate, what do you do? You drive down the PCO2. And when you drive down the PCO2, that puts a slight vasoconstriction on cerebral vessels, limiting flow and pressure up to the brain. So that is a compensatory response to try and lower ICP. So if your patient starts developing a neurogenic hyperventilation, just, you know, think about the fact that your patient also is probably experiencing an increase in their ICP. In neuro, especially in nursing school, we talk about Cushing's triad. We always learn about Cushing's triad of symptoms. And what is that? Well, the triad consists of an increase in systolic blood pressure, which will then widen the pulse pressure and bradycardia. So the three components of Cushing's triad include increased systolic blood pressure, widening pulse pressure, and bradycardia this is a late sign. That's the thing that you have to keep in mind. Like this is a late sign right before the patient herniates and dies. Okay. So just keeping that in mind in terms of the overall timeline of a neurologic change in your patient. Now, um, in my course, I do spend some time going over intracranial pressure monitoring. So, um, you know, if it's, if it would help you, um, please refer to my online program if that's an investment you would like to make, but let's continue along with our interventions then for somebody that has refractory elevated ICP. First of all, when somebody has, um, refractory elevated ICP. Refractory basically means that the patient has an ICP that's more than 20 for more than five minutes. Now, again, keep in mind that normal ICP is right around 10. So we may use hyperventilation using a bag in order to try and drive down PCO2. Because again, as we just said, hyperventilation will, um, drive down the CO2 and put slight vasoconstriction on cerebral vessels, which limits flow and pressure to the head. Manitol is an osmotic diuretic that can be administered. We can put in an ICP line with a ventricular, um, drain device in order to drain CSF in order to bring down elevated ICP make sure the patient is uvolemic. We may use hypertonic saline in order to um, reduce edema in edematous brain cells. Sometimes we have to perform a decompressive hemicraniectomy. And so that we send the patient to surgery where we are removing a portion of the skull to allow for the transmission of pressure in order to prevent herniation. And then once we have pressure under control, we can replace that. Uh, Temperature control. Therapeutic hypothermia may be used for refractory increase ICP, keeping the goal of the patient's body temp somewhere between 32 and 34 degrees, which is actually 89.6 to 93.2 Uh, degrees Fahrenheit. We can also use as needed benzodiazepines for sedation. And some patients will require barbiturate coma in order to keep ICPs under control. And typically when somebody is put into a barbiturate coma, we use things like the um, BIS, bispectral device in order to Um, monitor the depth with which we have a patient in a comatose state. So those are all of our interventions for refractory elevated ICP. Well, guys, this is it on the increases in intracranial pressure podcast 28. I hope that it has helped you in preparing for the CCRN exam. Again, Head over to my website, khoppypresents.com to find special offers and be sure and subscribe to my email list so you can be up to date. I also have a question of the day that I put, um, I send to you via email. I also have a Facebook page at khoppypresents where I ask CCRN and PCCN related questions. Thank you for listening guys and have a blessed day. Bye-bye.